Well, good morning. Good to see you on this uh, cool, rainy morning. A reminder that fall is finally here. So uh, kind of excited about that. Uh, hard to believe, too, that, uh, that Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Uh, it's just hard. And this year, Advent comes a week early. It actually begins in November. So November 29th, we'll begin to celebrate the season of Advent. Uh, we're so excited about uh, this year, the sermon series that we're preaching, also the uh, uh, Christmas Eve service that we'll have here. And we just want you to know that pretty soon you'll see some you know, banners up uh, kind of promoting that particular series called Rediscover Christmas. We'll also have some invite cards for you so that you can freely give them to friends, co-workers, family members, neighbors, and such. But we also have something available today. Uh, it's called an engager. Uh, this is called the gift. And really, the reason why they call it an engager is because it's designed to engage people. It's designed to get them to read a little bit. And it's not an in-your-face kind of uh, a gospel message. It talks about Christmas, and uh, the very front, it says, The Perfect Gift, Good News in Troubling Times. And you can see why we're excited about this Advent because this particular series is very apropos for where we are as a nation and for that matter in the world. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. There's also a website that you can go to that's really cool. When you click on the link, um, you can actually scroll through the Christmas story, click on pictures, and then more things will pop up. And so it's a really neat tool. If you can get this in the hands of somebody um, who doesn't know Christ or somebody who's uh, unchurched, dechurched, whatever, uh, this would be great. When you open it up, there's a little bit of text there, and then you open it up this way. And then you have basically the true meaning of Christmas. And so I hope you can pick those up. They're on the tables in the back. So as you're leaving, go ahead and grab one. Look it over. We'll have more available next week along with the invite cards. So with that being said, today is our last day in the book of 1 Peter. I hope you have enjoyed our study. As I have been reading through it over the last few months, uh, it has been... A, a contemporary study. I feel almost as if it could have been written yesterday, last week, this year, because it speaks to us on so many fronts. So we're going to be looking at chapter 5, uh, but by way of introduction, I thought I would share with you that a number of years ago, there were a group of researchers who uh, conducted an experiment on rats now, I know most people don't like rats, but apparently researchers love to mess with rats. Uh, but they did an experiment on rats um, to see the effect of hope on those who are experiencing hardship. Now, who knew rats could hope, right? But that's what, what they did. And they had two sets of laboratory rats. And they separated them, and they took one set of rats, and they placed them in a tub of water... And within an hour, they all drown. The second group of rats was also placed in a tub of water. But before any one of them actually uh, died, they would come and lift the rat out of the water for a brief period of time and then place him back in the water. And what they discovered was is that second group of rats not only survived past an hour, they lived up to 24 hours treading water. 
Now, that's incredible, and I, and I think what they surmised from all of that was that after being put back, um, it, it wasn't because of the brief rest, because it was very, very brief. It was just kind of pull them out of the water, get them all out, put them back in again. But it was because they believed that they had what we would now call hope. They somehow were conditioned to believe, again, if rats can believe anything, that if they could just tread water for a little while longer, someone would come and lift them up and they wouldn't die. Now, I think that's fascinating. And, and if hope can do that for a bunch of rats, imagine what it can do for us. Imagine what hope can do for us. And if there was ever a time that we needed hope, it's now, isn't it? And in so many ways, our nation is divided. The world is suffering from a global pandemic. We're all hoping that we and those we love won't get sick, that we won't die from this thing. Many are hoping that they can get back to work or back to their offices. Others are, are just hoping that this virus would just flat out go away. God, take it away. You can do it. Take it away. We want to get back to some semblance of normal. And on top of these hopes, there are just the basic hopes of life that we all have for good health, for long life, for a good marriage, a good job, godly kids. We hope for mercy when we need it. We hope for justice when we see the need for it. We hope for election outcomes and of course, we hope for eternal life. There's a great many things that we hope for, both small and large. But hope's greatest value is felt when all seems lost. It is then that hope is most powerful. I like what G.K. Chesterton said about hope. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope becomes a real strength. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the Christians to whom Peter wrote his first letter were in dire need of hope. They were desperate for hope. They were facing terrible persecution and fiery trials. They were scattered ab about. They were forced to leave their homes, their livelihood, family, and friends because of persecution. No doubt many of them felt hopeless. And that's why Peter writes this first letter to them, to encourage them to endure to not give up and not give in. And that's a message we need to hear today. And I think Peter does this masterfully. He, he does it in a lot of ways, but let me sum up some of them. He does this by reminding them of several precious eternal truths. He reminds them that they have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two 
an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for them. He reminds them that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter calls them to follow Christ's example of suffering by living humble, submissive, and counter-cultural lives. He urges them to use their gifts to serve one another, and above all, to keep loving one another and to show hospitality to one another. You see, Jesus had already rescued them from sin. Now they must endure by setting their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as Peter closes out his letter, he calls every Christ follower to be faithful, humble, and watchful as we await the glorious return of our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this wonderful book that we've been studying for your servant, Peter. Lord, thank you for your grace that was poured out on him so richly that his life was transformed so that he might even be able to pen these words that we could read today, 2,000 years later. Lord, I pray that as we, um, we end this series, that Lord, that you would just remind us of the truths that we've learned Help us to apply them to our life, and may we never, ever give up hope. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. What we're going to see here is that um, Peter... Um, gives us a series of exhortations directed to three different groups here in the church. To elders, those who are younger, and everybody else. So those are the three groups. And the exhortations that, that Peter gives begins with this one. We are to be faithful. Be faithful. Now this exhortation is primarily directed to shepherds. But the principles apply to us as well. So verse 1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, right out of the gate, I have to tell you that speaking on a passage here that deals with, with elders, what elders are supposed to do, how we're supposed to respond to elders, it, I, I almost wish somebody other than myself was doing this. But I'm going to try to share with you what I believe 
God is saying to us here in this passage. In light of Christ's sufferings and the glory that will one day be revealed, Christians, and in particular elders, are called to be faithful. Now the word that we have there, elder, is the Greek word presbyteros, meaning old man or senior, okay? So under that definition, I would qualify as an old man. Now, in, in, in Peter's day, in Jesus' day, really within the Jewish community, if you were over 40, you were an old man. You were considered an elder. So everybody under the age of 40 then would not be, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I also want to mention to you that there are two other terms that are used in the New Testament to describe an elder, and they're interchangeable. So you, you have presbuteros, meaning elder, or, or old man, or a senior. The other one is episkopos. And by the way, go back to the first one, presbyteros. What word do you think comes from that in the English? Presbyterian. What about episkopos? Episcopal, okay. So now you know where these words come from. The word episcopal actually means bishop or overseer, Okay. So you would be correct if you wanted to call me Bishop Paul, okay? Or Bishop Eric or Ryan or Greg. Um, But the other word that is used is a word called poimen. That word is usually translated shepherd. In some Bible, well, yeah, we'll say in some Bibles, it's translated one time a word most familiar to you. What it is? Pastor. It appears in Ephesians 4.11. It's the only place in the English Bible where this word is translated pastor. In many Bibles, including the ESV, it doesn't show up. It's just simply shepherd. I find that kind of interesting because pastor is the term that is you know, most familiar to us and used most within the church, yet it doesn't even appear in some Bibles. Notice, too, that Peter addresses the elders among you. He isn't addressing the elder among you. Why is that? Well, it's because in the New Testament, we, what we find is that leadership within the church is always in the plural. There is a plurality of leadership within the church. Whenever Paul would tell Timothy, for instance, to appoint elders in every city or in every church, it's always plural. So there is a plurality or a shared leadership amongst this group of people known as elders or pastors or shepherds, overseers, or bishop. These are all interchangeable terms for the same office. And here at New Life, this is the ministry model we follow. This is our pattern for leadership, shared leadership. We don't, well, I'll I'll get to this. Um, If you notice... Peter says, he refers to himself as a fellow elder, a fellow elder. And he includes himself in his exhortation to be faithful. So he saw himself as a fellow elder, not one that was over all the other elders. And and this is interesting because, you know, within the church, 
we, we usually have a top-down leadership structure, you know, where you have a senior pastor, you know, then you have the executive pastor, maybe an associate pastor, an assistant pastor, and then somewhere down, way down here is the youth pastor, you know. Um, and and there, a lot of churches follow that model. That's not really what we see in Scripture. Now, uh, I, I'm not saying that God can't use that model, but I think if we want to be biblical, we need to understand that there is, there, there, there is a senior pastor and his name is Jesus. Elders are merely under shepherds. And I think I'll be able to point that out to you here in, in just a minute. But So he addresses his fellow elders and he exhorts them to be faithful. So the question is, faithful to what? Faithful in what? Well, there are at least two things here in the passage. The first is, is that they are to be faithful in their ministry. It says, shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. So the shepherd's duties include that of feeding, encouraging, discipling, disciplining, and protecting the flock. Pastors are to guard the sheep against false teachers against legalists and those who would be divisive. And anything and anyone who would harm the sheep and hinder them from fulfilling the mission that God has called them to. Now, I've already mentioned this, that I'm not talking about um, uh, a senior pastor here, but, it, but I want you to, to see how this kind of comes together. In, in Peter's day, if there were large flocks, there were often numerous shepherds. And there was always one shepherd that was over the other shepherds, okay? And see, immediately our mind goes to the, the senior pastor. He's the guy that's over all the other shepherds. Uh, some people may not say uh, a senior pastor, but maybe a lead pastor, or perhaps uh, what they call the first among equals, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Peter's talking about. What we see here is he's, he's talking about Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Now in verse four, if you look at verse four, Peter tells us clearly that Jesus is the chief shepherd. And in Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep. And as I mentioned here at New Life, um, we follow this plurality of leadership, this ministry model where we are under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and notice too that, that we are not overseeing believers in other churches. We, we, we do not oversee Grace Bibles Fellowship or Grace Fellowship or X Church. We oversee the fellowship here. This body is the body that God has entrusted to us as elders, and we are to be faithful in our ministry to you and to God. But not only are we to be faithful in our ministry, we're to be faithful in our motives. And I think you can see this here again in, in verse two. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the first thing you see here is, is that, 
that our motive should not be um, out of duty or obligation or compulsion, if you would. I think sometimes we can do disservice to people. I've, I've seen many people who have been kind of pushed into ministry positions when they shouldn't have been. And oftentimes by well-meaning family, friends, other people in the church. But it shouldn't be out of duty or obligation. And it shouldn't be for shameful gain. Leaders should not be greedy for money for prestige, for power, or position. That's why sometimes when I turn on the TV and I land on one of those religious broadcasts, my stomach just turns. When you see some of these pastors and televangelists begging for money, if you would just sow a seed of $1,000, God will multiply it and it will come back to you and and then you, you watch them and you see them driving their big expensive cars, flying in their jets and, and everything else. Peter makes it very clear. We should not have a motive of, of greed or shameful gain in our ministry. Now, having said that, this doesn't mean that it is the church's calling to keep the pastor poor. Okay? Some churches feel that way. We're just keeping you humble, pastor. <laughs> you know? No. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the elders who rule, are, uh, rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So it shouldn't be out of duty, obligation, or compulsion. It shouldn't be for shameful gain. And it shouldn't be to wield power and control over the flock. Leadership is not a di dictatorship. The elders are not to domineer or lord it, lord it over those in their charge. Pastors are overseers, not overlords. I know in talking with some of you, some of you have come out of churches like that. Pastors don't demand respect. They command it by their godly lives and their sacrificial love. They embrace and they embody the values of the church and they are visible examples to the flock. That's what we hope we are to you. And we know we're not perfect. You know we're not perfect. But that's our motive. We bleed the vision of the church. We flesh out its values. Leadership in the church is not about control. It's about faithfulness to Christ's command to make disciples. It's faithfulness in following him. And it's influencing others to do the same. That's what it is. Peter refers to those in your charge, literally meaning those assigned to you, and we've talked about that. You're the group of people that God has assigned to us. We don't exercise church discipline over believers in another church, but we'll do it here. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction and training and reproof, 
A lot of times we get real excited. Yeah, it's great for teaching, but you know, there's the other things. There's the reproof and there's the correction and training in righteousness. And as elders, this is the only authority we have. So if you have made new life your home, you can expect to be held accountable in the Christian life, to be all that God intends you to be to grow and to mature, to find a place of service, to be in community with one another, and to be on mission with God. So if these are not to be our motives, what then should be our motives? Well, I think very simply, it should be our love for God and our love for one another. I've heard it said that ministry would be fun if it wasn't for the people. It's a little... Tongue-in-cheek, I understand where that comes from. I've, I've said it a couple times myself, but I want you to understand. Ministry's not about having fun. We don't serve to have fun. We serve the Lord and we serve you because we love God and we love you. We want the best for you. Um, and sometimes it is tough. And that's where the joke kind of comes in. Sometimes it is hard. But listen, anybody, you know, who's come out of a family, anyone who has a family knows that family, sometimes it's hard. Learning to get along with each other, communicating with each other, adjusting to one another, it, it can be hard. Shepherds are called to love the sheep and lay down their lives for them. They are to serve as God would have them, willingly and eagerly. But I think it should also be because of the promise of a future reward. You see it there in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, that's, that's one thing that's in the back of my mind as an elder, as a pastor, as an overseer. Because in this life, you don't always see the fruit of your labor. Sometimes you experience a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache, because when people hurt, you hurt. We are, we are to weep with those who weep. When you see marriages falling apart, when you see people walking away from Christ, who you have poured months and years into it's hard sometimes you wonder is it is it worth it am i making a difference has anybody's life really changed we don't often see it i mean most people don't come knocking on our door during the week and say hey you know pastor you know i'd like to tell you what god has done in my life let me tell you how this past week god has done this or done that we have people sometimes that pray to receive Christ in our service and we don't even know about it. But there is a reward, a crown of glory. And the truth is, every Christian ought to be faithful and every Christian ought to be working for God's ultimate reward. The second exhortation that Peter gives us here is in verse five, and that is simply, be humble. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what Paul is is saying here that those who are younger, keep in mind generally under the age of 40, that there should be a willingness to submit to those whom God has placed in authority over them. And Peter has already spent a great deal of time in chapter two and chapter three talking about submission to authority. So we shouldn't be surprised that he brings it up here. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. You know that humility is spoken or referred to some 900 times in Scripture? I think we can conclude that it's pretty important to God. James tells us, That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves there before the Lord, and he will exalt you. To be clothed with humility means to be controlled by a humble spirit. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. No wonder Peter writes here in verse 6 of chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now when I read those two verses together, I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but at first I almost feel like, Verse seven seems to like come out of nowhere. How does that relate to humility? But it's not a mistake that humility and anxiety are tied together in these verses. And here's why. Anxiety is often produced by our inability to control our circumstances. Right? Control our circumstances. What do you think Peter's getting at here? I think because in trying to control our circumstances, we are in effect trying to be God. We want control as opposed to allowing God to have control. And boy, if if that doesn't cause anxiety, nothing will. Of course it's going to cause anxiety. And humility is a great antidote to that kind of anxiety. A humble person recognizes that they're not God, that they don't have everything under control. And then when you add to that an understanding that God is not indifferent to our cares and our concerns, You take humility, you take the understanding that God cares. God cares about me and what I'm going through. That means I I can trust him. I can let this go. I I can trust God. It's as if you can come before God and say, God, I need you. I don't know what to do about this situation, but I trust you. I am casting my anxiety on you because I know that you care for me. 
and you know what's best. Humility. So we're to be faithful, we're to be humble. The last thing that Peter mentions here is that we are to be watchful. Actually, there are two commands here, to be sober-minded and to be watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. C.S. Lewis said once that there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Neither of these are options for the Christian. We have to understand that we are in a spiritual battle. There are demonic forces. We need to be spiritually vigilant. And verse 8 is a reminder that we are in a war. There are forces of wickedness. There is a devil. And we need to know our enemy. We, we need not to be ignorant of his schemes. Speaking of schemes, nobody knew the prowlings of, of the devil more than Peter. Remember that conversation that Peter had with Jesus once? And, and Jesus turned to him and said, hey, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. Peter understood the wiles of the devil. He understood the schemes of the enemy. So what is Peter's advice? Resist him. Firm in the faith. We resist the devil by standing firm in our faith, by trusting in the promises of God and relying on the victory that he wrought for us at the cross where he crushed Satan's head. We have to remember, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. We can stand firm and resist him in the truth of God's word. As if that wasn't enough, Peter goes on to say, hey, remember something, you're not alone. You are not alone in your struggles. Other Christians are going through the same kinds of struggles and suffering as you are. And this is vital to understand because many times when we go through difficulty, when we go through trials, we can feel like we're alone. And if we feel like we're alone in it, that's when we are most vulnerable to the enemy. And Satan would like us to think that God is indifferent, that he doesn't care about what it is that we're going through. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so Peter is telling him, hey, remember, you're not alone in this. You have brothers and sisters all over the world who are going through the exact same struggles as you are. And when you realize that, you don't despair. Peter encourages them by reminding them that after they have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter concludes his letter with some final greetings by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanus is called elsewhere by the name Silas. And he most likely carried this letter to Peter's recipients. And Peter sums up the entire letter by stating this is the true grace of God. As opposed to a false grace of God. See, some people think grace removes the problem of pain and suffering. It doesn't. But it does help us to endure it. It strengthens us so that we can persevere through it. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, that is the church at Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And I just love that because Mark is the same John Mark that traveled with Paul and Barnabas in their first missionary journey. It's the same Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And you hear something of Peter's heart when he refers to him as his son. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Clearly, they were not dealing with a global pandemic. But a kiss of love was a customary greeting in Peter's day, in the first century church. And peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter closes the letter with a final prayer, a prayer for peace, that his readers will experience peace, which is really unbelievable when you understand what it is that they were going through. These these Christians, despite being persecuted and undergoing fiery trials, had a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you? Do you have this hope? Apart from Christ, we have no hope. We have no peace. We have no purpose in life. So if you're here this morning or if you're watching online and, and you're lacking that peace, you, you don't have that living hope. That can change right now. You can simply go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, I confess that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I need you to save me. And I want you to give me the gift of eternal life. I turn from my sins and I receive you, Jesus, into my life as my Lord and Savior. He's only a prayer away. Hope is a powerful thing, even for rats. If 
you know Christ, if you have been born again to this living hope, know that Christ has already rescued you from sin. Now we simply must endure. Knowing that one day he will return and he will lift us out of this world and out of our suffering and out of our pain. Until that day, may we all live faithfully. May we all be humble. And may we all be watchful as we await his glorious return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the cross, for your word. Lord, we thank you for your servant Peter who penned these words that speak to us today. And Lord, we know it's not really his words, it's your word. And so Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us for what lies ahead, that we would never give up, that we would never give in, that we would persevere by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would bring you honor and glory. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your great love for us and it's in your name we pray, amen.